And a happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, Evelyn. <laughs> all right. Um, so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians now for the next six weeks. 2 Corinthians. We have finished 1 Corinthians. That was an eight week journey. Looking at one. And the oneness that Paul was calling his uh, fledgling new congregation toward. And they had all kinds of problems that he was mending and bringing the, thought, the fellowship and the body as one. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to see his second attempt, at least in scripture, his second attempt to this congregation. And this is going to be written a couple years after 1 Corinthians. And I'll tell you about the letter. We'll look at the first two chapters, and I'll tell you about what we're going to be looking at this six weeks as well. So read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So in some, Paul is saying that we, the followers of Jesus, are a sort of fragrance. We're a perfume. We are the fragrance. If Christ had a fragrance, it's what, that's what we are. And we are presenting this fragrance both to those that are saved, following Jesus, and those who are not saved, not following Jesus. This fragrance is going out. However, verse 16, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, to those that don't follow Jesus, you might stink. And then to those that do follow Jesus, you are the aroma that they should be longing for. And there should be like this connection, this aha so not that we should stink to everybody. That's not a good um, witnessing model. It's, um, however, the fact that the Christian community will at times be at odds with the way of the world. And so Paul says, there we are. We are the fragrance. We are carrying on the scent of Jesus. You know how someone who wears really strong perfume will be in a room. They leave the room and then there's a lingering scent. You may not have even seen this person, but if you know their smell, you're like... Billy was here, wasn't he, she? <laughs> That's the church. We are the lingering odor of Jesus. What he had done on earth, it's reverberating. The scent lingers here in the community of his followers. So that is a pretty significant picture that Paul's painted for us as his followers. That's what we do. That's what we are on this earth, the lingering fragrance. So naturally, Paul's going to now ask this question. It's at the end of verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? That's a mighty high calling. And who is worthy? Who is sufficient? Who is qualified to be the fragrance of Christ? Answer is in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Those who are trying to sell it for profit. Those who try to water it down and cheapen it in order to make something off of it. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, 
or from God. ESV adds the word commission to give it its strongest sense as commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ that there. Paul says, this is where we're coming from. We're sincere. We're commissioned by God and we speak on his behalf. That is who is sufficient for these things. Who is sufficient to be the fragrance, the, the lingering odor of Christ. His answer is not one type of people, but definitely a certain type of people. And that's where we're going to introduce the theme of second Corinthians for these next six weeks. It's unmasked the idea that sometimes humans wear masks. We're very prone to putting on a front that is not our true selves. And we want with Paul to go through this book and become people who are unmasked. People who are willing to wear our true selves and not put on a pretend self. Um, as I read through this entire epistle, that was the sense. In several locations, I got that Paul was talking about this genuineness. He wants to represent himself and the followers of Jesus as genuine people. That we have nothing to cover up. The fragrance of Christ isn't like a junior hire putting on cologne to cover up their after PE scent. That's not the idea. This isn't a cover up. This is about getting to the genuine. This is the essence of Christ. And we want people who are reflecting that and letting that, uh, that fragrance arise as is, not as some sort of cover up. And... So those who are not sufficient, those who are not worthy of carrying on this fragrance are those who are not sincere, who are not commissioned by God, who are not speaking on behalf of God. Rather, they're the masked ones who go around concerned about what people think of them. So they put on a certain front and they want to be seen a certain way because they're looking for acceptance. They're looking for fitting in. And Paul wants to say, no, 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 no. No, no. The ones that are actually worthy of carrying on this fragrance, they're the ones that are going to be unmasked and genuine and be who they be, if you excuse my poor grammar. That's the people we're looking for. And that's what Paul says he is. I am sincere. I am sent by God and I'm speaking on behalf of God for Christ. Now, the reason for bringing this up is because there are masked people in the Corinthian church, causing a little bit of trouble. Um, a couple of verses here. For example, 2 verse 17 we just read. There's an implication that there are some people not like Paul. So they are masked. They're less than sincere. But if you want to jump ahead to chapter 11, we're going to point out a couple of verses. Of course, we'll get to this, but it's important to see now to what extent Paul is addressing um, his audience. So in 11.5... You read this. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. (laughs) So Paul has a group of people in the Corinthian church who consider themselves super apostles. That's Paul's sarcastic term for them. They think they're somebody. They wear the mask of greatness. And Paul's like, okay, so maybe I don't wear that mask and I don't come across as as great as these people. But listen up. They are super apostles. They're the mask wearers. They're fake. And then it comes out even more a few verses later in 11 verse 13. He's addressing the same people. 11 13. For such men are false apostles. Deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves. Now, New King James says transforming. I'm sorry, but I think you're missing it there. The, this translation of disguising, it seems much more spot on. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here you see Paul addressing his Corinthian church and saying, look, these super apostles among you, um, they're wearing masks. They're disguised. They aren't who they say they are. They aren't as great as they pretend to be. So that's Paul's warning to them is, listen, we are the fragrance bearers of Christ. But who is sufficient for this? It's not these people that try to look so good and look so polished and be more than they really are. It's the people that walk in sincerity of heart and genuineness of spirit and simply allow themselves to be not fake. They are willing to unmask themselves. There is a genuine humanity walking on this earth that is not afraid to show who they are because they know who they are in Christ. And that's what Paul is going to call us into as we go through 2 Corinthians. Now, amen. Now, what we need to turn our attention to is these masked ones. Who are these, quote, super apostles? That's what we're going to describe real briefly. Um, So what is happening in 2 Corinthians is Paul has to write again because there's been a disturbance within the fellowship. Have they become one? Well, they're on their way. They're becoming one more so, like we learned in 1 Corinthians. But what Paul is running into now is that there is a a group of opposition, people who don't like Paul at all. And they want to steal the attention of these new believers to follow them. So what sort of strategy are they using? Well, they're using the classic strategies. Let's talk bad about Paul and let's lift up our credentials higher than they maybe really are. Let's boast about our strengths and exaggerate Paul's weaknesses. That should get the people to look at Paul a little less favorably and start to follow us. That's the mentality that's going on. So you've got a bunch of people um, going around, wearing these masks, pretending that they are really better apostles than Paul, so follow us, and Paul has to write in response. Who are these opponents? We don't know. <laughs> but you can guess a little bit. You can't get specific, but you can get a broad, you can, you can paint them with a broad brush by reading the epistle and seeing some of the things that Paul is saying. So let me give you three Um, three areas that these opponents boasted about. They prided themselves in three areas. And these, of course, are direct attacks against Paul as well. Number one, it's in three, verse one, chapter three, verse one. It's that they have recommendations. They have recommendations. Three, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, my opponents, letters of recommendation to you or from you. And then Paul will go on. We'll see this next week. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and ready by all. So these opponents boast of the fact that they have recommendations, letters that basically support them. Um, We don't know who wrote these letters of recommendation. 
it is maybe the church in Jerusalem. That would be something. If maybe Paul himself, you know, I'm sorry, not Paul, Peter, Peter himself wrote a letter recommending, hey, I highly recommend Richard Johnson to you. He is well studied. He's well learned. He has a great voice, you know, and they go forth and say all the good things about him. So they show up in Corinth and say, look, look, Peter endorsed us. Does Paul have one of these? And then the people, oh, super apostles. Hiding behind a certificate. Hiding behind this little piece of paper, pretending they're more than Paul, pretending they're more than they are. We have a world right now that works this way. Somehow, if you have a couple of um, initials or letters after your name, you are more legitimate than I am. Now, I do not ever, ever, ever knock a doctor People who have studied to earn these letters after the names have earned them. And they've done a lot of good hard work. In fact, um, you may not know this. We have four doctors in this fellowship. I mean, that's, I think that's quite a lot, you know, for a fellowship of this size. Four doctors. Good for them. They are intelligent people. We need them. We need their guidance and their wisdom. Um, the world needs those sorts of credentials. However... We can get to the point where we hide behind our credentials. We hide behind our degrees and we become, our identity becomes what we've accomplished. And we can sometimes trust people blindly just because they have some sort of a degree. Do you know who I studied under? (laughs) Sort of a thing. And we need to be careful that we don't evaluate people based upon their letters of recommendation. And that's what these, quote, super apostles, these opponents were doing is, look, we have got better letters recommendation than Paul does. Therefore, Paul is inferior to us. Follow us. And Paul obviously is going to argue that one out later. He can win that argument, but that's what they're saying. So number one, they have letters recommendation. They're somebody. (laughs) Number two, uh, their speech. Do you remember the pop preachers in 1 Corinthians Corinth is a city that had a love for public speaking. And in the way that we will have our favorite musicians and go to concerts and we have American Idol and vote who's a good singer and who's not a good singer. And we have our bands that we follow and so forth. Move that into public speaking. That's Corinth. They had their favorite speakers. They followed some. They toured. They supported. Um, They didn't have record releases, of course. But um they voted, they voted uh, who was better or not. And even in some of the, the, uh, the Isthmian games that they had the, every other year, um, they had public speaking competitions and he could win a gold medal in public speaking. This is what's going on in Corinth. And so anybody who wanted to become a somebody in Corinth simply had to work on their speaking skills. It doesn't matter if they're straw men that have no substance to them. If they can speak beautifully, persuasively, and spectacularly, everybody thinks that they're somebody. And so these opponents come in and they begin to wax eloquently and they begin to try to outdo Paul in their phrasing and their, uh, their speaking. And this is working. And some of the people, they're like, okay, these are the people. They speak better than Paul. You see that in 11 verse 5, chapter 11 verse 5, um, where Paul says, we already read this verse, but indeed, um, nope, I'm sorry, 11 verse 6. <laughs> Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. 
Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So there Paul concedes a point. Maybe I'm not as good at speaking as they are. That was an if, even if. But there you see that Paul's addressing some sort of opposition, even if I'm not as good of a speaker. And then go ahead and number three, it's in 10 verse 10. Since you're in 11, just go left a little bit. 10 verse 10. And then we're not going to jump around forever. Don't worry. 10 verse 10. For they say, the super apostles, the opponents, they say, his, Paul's, letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Ooh, what a scathing critique, huh? That's what they say about Paul. Oh, he's big in his letters, but when he shows up, he's such a small dude. He's got no weight. He's got no authority whatsoever. He's actually kind of timid. He's kind of shy. He doesn't really throw his weight around. You don't even, is he here? Where is he? Um, That's what they're saying about Paul. So third, we see that the opponents, the super apostles are boasting that they have a charismatic personality, but you don't have to boast about that. You just have to show it. So they come in with all their charisma and all the eyes are glued to them. Maybe they're even tall in stature and a little muscular and they're shaped and toned and maybe they're wearing the latest fashion trends. Who knows? They come in and the eye gets them. And then, yeah, Paul, that guy. There's some historical descriptions of Paul. He was not apparently a very attractive person. They say he's short, hooked nose. Um, I don't think that was just a... uh, um, a racial uh, stereotype, but um, very hooked, I guess, a very short, not attractive person at all. I, sh- I should get that um, quote for you guys for next week. Yes. <laughs> and so Paul um, had that going against him. And the super apostles, well, we look good and we have the personality that attracts people. So this is what Paul's dealing with, okay? He's away from Corinth. He's presently in Ephesus. Uh, he's actually presently in Macedonia. He's in, uh, let me put that. He's in Philippi. He's in Philippi, and he is writing this letter, and he realizes what's going on. These people are trying to steal his converts and lead them into a way that Paul does not think is necessarily the proper way of Jesus. So these are the unmasked ones. What we're going to see in this letter is that Paul believes they are insufficient. They are unworthy of bearing the fragrance of Jesus because they are putting on more of a show than really the backstage can support. They are wearing a mask that looks far better than they actually are. And because Paul isn't playing the better mask game, well, he may look a little inferior. But it's the unmasked, again in 2.17, that Paul says they are the worthy ones. They are sincere. They're, they're not going about pretending to be more than they are. They simply let the fragrance of Christ do the work. You can imagine masked people are the ones you know, wearing the mask, trying to be better. It's almost like they're saying, oh yeah, the fragrance of Christ is great, but we can really add to this. We can make this better. I, I wonder why he didn't consider putting little frankincense in there. You know, like we can touch this up a bit. Um, and Paul's, no, look, the unmasked people who just simply let Jesus work in their weakness and in who they are. This is where the beauty of Christ is shining. This is where the beauty of Christ is smelled. This is the scent we want. 
So the ones that are sufficient to carry on the messianic scent to the rest of the world, these are the genuine unmasked people. Stop following and stop believing in all these words and lies from these masked, fake, phony, super apostles. That's what he wants to say to them right off the bat. That's where this letter opens up. So, if you will, what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians is he's writing a resume. He's writing a resume to his own converts. Okay, you guys remember me? Yeah, the one that gave the gospel to you. I saved you. I kind of formed this little gathering of Christians together. Do you remember me? Um, hey, re, re, re-believe. <laughs> this sounds weird. Re-believe me. That's not what I'm trying to say. But um, remember me? I'm your pastor. It's trying to re-appeal to them. Don't follow these fakers. They're in it. They're trying to, they're in it for something. I was giving you everything for nothing. Remember me? So 2 Corinthians is kind of like a resume. It's Paul reapplying to his own converts that he's their pastor. Can you imagine doing that? That's what 2 Corinthians is. Look at it as a resume. Paul is at times going to be very defensive. It's um, in technical language. This would be called a forensic letter. Forensic. Forensic deals with courtroom stuff. So Paul's going to be writing this in many ways like a case. He's going to be bringing up evidence and defenses. And his whole point, he's not writing, please get this, he's not writing to his opponents. He can care less about them. He knows they're fake and phony. He's not going to waste his time arguing with them. He's writing to the church. And he's giving his resume to them. And he's saying, hey, Reconsider who you've hired, quote, hired as your pastor. Reconsider this. Now, here is what is foreign to our concept. We write resumes, and the goal of these resumes is to boast about our strengths. Say, hey, I am a huge asset to your company. You want me. This is what I do super well. That's how we write resumes in America. We put on the biggest, fattest, most beautiful mask we can and say, you want me. Paul's resume is going to be very different. He is going to be doing the very opposite. He's removing that jargon. He's taking that mask off and he's saying, here I am with my warts, my ugliness and my insufficiencies. You want me. What? And we're going to see down the road in chapter 12, he's going to say things like, I boast in my weaknesses. It's my weaknesses that I glorify. And through this letter, he's going to be doing stuff like this. It's not about how good Paul is and how dumb these super apostles are. My opponents don't have a candle next to me. He will do that one little window and he's going to actually say, I'm speaking foolishly. Let me speak foolishly. And then he's going to go off and brag about himself only to show that these super apostles have nothing next to him. But the rest of the time, he's going to be talking and and playing up his weaknesses and saying, I am so unqualified to be your pastor. Please, please, please let me be your pastor again. So look at this as a sort of inverted resume, a resume that's turned upside down. That's what we're dealing with. It's an unmasked resume. This is Paul in all of his genuineness. Okay, he's often writing lofty things and we read it like, well, I don't understand that. Somebody help me understand Paul. He's so confusing. Um, I know doctors that say that, you know, they're like, yeah, Paul, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's hard to understand. Even Peter said that in one of his letters. But Paul, okay, this guy that can really bring it on and wax eloquently, um, he is going to just lay out his ugly side and say, I'm just a stinky person too, who simply wants to let the fragrance of Christ be the beauty. <laughs> so that's why we're looking at unmasked. We're going to see Paul do it. 
And we, my prayer is that we will be people who emulate his unmasking so that we can reach out to people around us too. That's Paul's method here. How is he going to regain these Christians by unmasking himself and showing them what genuineness looks like? How are we going to reach out the same way? Why do we wear masks? I mean, you could probably, you know, we could do a whole night about the reason we wear masks, but very, very, very simply, we wear masks because we fear that if people saw who we really are, they wouldn't accept us. But here's the folly of wearing masks to be accepted. All you're getting from this group of people is that you're getting acceptance. Paul was after more than acceptance from his congregation. Paul was after belonging. And there's a difference between acceptance and belonging. I can be accepted, but acceptance is conditional. Acceptance says, well, yeah, we've got a certain shape and a certain style and a certain way of doing things. And when I conform to those things, I'm then accepted. That's acceptance. But Paul isn't putting on the mask the Corinthians want because he's trying to get accepted. Paul is trying to remake his, his, his Christians realize that he actually belongs there and these other leaders don't belong there. What belonging, the way to belong is take the mask off and see who loves you the way you are. Those are the people you belong with. There is no conditions. It's exactly as you are. They take you and we grow up together. So that's why Paul is not going to play the mask game. He wants his church to have a genuine leader who's going to bring that about in the people around him. So now that we have that brought before us and Paul's efforts that we'll see these six weeks, let's go ahead and dive into what chapters one and two specifically are about. Now, as you know, we're not going to be able to go through every single verse. You can always, always ask me about things later, but we're going to touch on some, what, what Paul here is unmasking. And as you see on the TVs uh, tonight is distress unmasked. Paul is filled with distress in these opening chapters. But rather than putting a mask over that, Paul's going to let them see the distress. He's going to let this be known. And so that's what we're going to see is Paul's distress. Is Paul distressed? Well, let's take a look. Verses uh, three, chapter one, verse three and four. We begin there. One, verse three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then he goes on and talks about the fact that they've been afflicted. They've gone through sufferings, but we're receiving comfort. Okay, so this is just simply by implication. You see right off the bat, if Paul is praising God for all this comfort he's received, you know that he didn't have comfort before so it's implying that there was a lot of distress beforehand and so we know by implication right off the bat that paul is changed something changed he was distressed but now he's praising 
the fact that God comforts him. And now he wants to share that comfort with the Corinthians. You'll see more of that in a second. Um, Verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, Asia, when, when Paul refers to Asia and Acts refers to Asia, it more often than not simply refers to Ephesus, okay? The crown city of Turkey or Asia Minor, we call it. Uh, that would be, that's what he's referring to. So his time in Ephesus. Do you remember his time in Ephesus when we we're in Acts? Um, that was the place where a huge riot was started and Paul was at the very center of that riot and the whole city was up in arms over him. And, um, some scholars believe it's sort of a newer trend. So, um, that means therefore I'm not sold on it, but there is a theory that Paul was even arrested during that time in Ephesus. And during this arrest, he wrote, um, the letter Philippians so that to some people, Philippians actually comes before second Corinthians. Cause remember, we're doing this in chronological order, right? As the books are going through in, in the order of writing. So under some ideas, we should actually be in Philippians right now. But I'm going to hold to the, uh, the one that stood the test of time, that Philippians was written when he's in prison in Rome much later. But just so you know, uh, there's, there, he may have gone through more in Ephesus than we see written in Acts. Um, so he's describing his time in Ephesus, the affliction they experienced, middle of verse 8. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. (laughs) Yep, that's he was distressed. And in verse nine, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Oh, my goodness. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says, we were super distressed. And here's a moment, right? His, his reverse resume where he shows, look, we couldn't even handle it. I, Paul, was at my end. I could not handle what was thrown at me. And God did this to show us that we're nothing and we have to trust in God. Oh, do your uh, super apostles talk that way? Hmm, didn't, didn't think so. Um, but so there we see that even in this, there was something that happened in Ephesus that made him distressed. But now... What happened in Corinth made him distressed, especially. Look at 2 verse 1. 2 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did... So that when I came, I'll explain all this, but you're looking for his distress. Uh, So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Okay, so does it sound like Paul was in distress? A lot of words of affliction, sorrow, pain. Yeah, it was not a good time. And finally, if you go to 2 verse 13, you're going to see his final hint at his distress. 2.13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And I'll explain again. I'll explain some of this background in a moment. But there we see his spirit is not at rest. 
which is very nice, very soft way of just simply saying he was freaking out. <laughs> so um, Paul is in a bit of distress. There's sorrow, there's pain, there is uh, anxiety for things he's going through and his church in Corinth. And so we really see Paul here not saying everything's fine. I miss you guys. I wish you didn't follow them. No, he's just full on unmasked. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, I'm not happy about what these opponents are doing. Yeah, I don't feel great one bit about what's going on over there. I'm hurt. I'm pained. I've cried many tears. I am not at rest. He's just letting them see his raw soul. And it's not exactly the Paul, the strong and mighty Paul you're expecting to see. So yes, Paul is in distress. So let's follow now the the narrative that leads up to Paul's distress. We're going to get this background information now, okay? So these opponents arrive, okay? So so Paul goes to Corinth, and remember in Acts, he spends a year and a half in Corinth. From Corinth, he writes to the Thessalonians. So we looked at Thessalonians already. Then he goes on to his third missionary journey, and he plants himself in Ephesus for two years. It's there in Ephesus that he writes to the Corinthian church. He hears about some of their factions, their divisions. They're not getting along. So he writes, hey, I've got a big, massive 16-chapter book that Sunday Night Bible Study took eight weeks to go through about how to become one and how to get along. So get along. (laughs) And he writes that to them from Ephesus. Well, um. Some time goes on and he hears the opponents now, those that speak against Paul to try to steal the church to follow them and not Paul. He hears about these opponents and he says, this is not good at all. So Paul sails directly from Ephesus to Corinth. It's only about 200 miles. So it was a quick two major ports. So just a quick nonstop flight, right? The best. <laughs> um, if, well, some people don't think so. But, um, so he just goes from Ephesus to Corinth and he marches in and he wants to straighten things out. But he doesn't ever get a chance because the ringleader of these opponents confronts Paul in a very vicious way and it humiliates Paul and says he's not welcome here. And Paul goes off hurt, severely hurt that his church had turned on him in favor of these who are these masked leaders. That's what he refers to in two verse one. I did not want to make another painful visit to you. So there was that very painful visit. So then what does Paul do when he returns um, to Ephesus? Well, uh, he, he decides to um, march on up to Philippi, where he's going to. You might remember this. It'll come up later in this book, so it's good to be reminded. Remember in his final missionary journey, he was collecting money from many of the churches to support the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Well, he now begins to make his final rounds to collect these, uh, this gift and then go to Jerusalem. So he goes from Ephesus up to Philippi, and there he receives a massive donation that blew him away. He's going to talk about it later. And it's in Philippi that he decides to write a letter to the Corinthians. So he writes um, a very difficult letter, and this letter is... We don't have it. It's not Second Corinthians. It's a letter lost to history. He, he makes reference to it. We saw there in 2 verse 3. 
talks about this letter that he wrote. And there's much affliction and anguish and many tears. And I love uh, the message I read every now and then is for a beautiful alternative reading. Uh, The message puts it as uh, there were more tears than ink on the page. That's the kind of letter that he writes. And apparently he is in suspense. It was a very harsh, a very severe letter. It's him really giving it to them for the painful visit that he had. Not vengefully, but to correct them and say, listen to what you did to me. And now he writes the letter and he is extremely worried. He's anxious. He's distressed. He's clawing his insides out, wondering, are they going to accept that letter? How did they react to the letter? I wrote it. I threw my tears on it. And are they going to reject me? Are they hurt by me? I don't know. What, what, what is their reaction? So the letter was sent by Titus. Okay. And I actually give you false information. <laughs> he didn't write this letter from Philippi. He wrote this letter from Ephesus. Sorry, you're all confused now. It's this, this second Corinthians that was written in Philippi. I got ahead of myself. But so, um, so he writes this letter, right? And he sends it from Ephesus to Corinth by way of Titus. Titus brings it to them. And Paul, meanwhile, goes up. He's making his way on a couple missionary rounds. He goes up to Troas and Titus is supposed to meet him there. Guess what happens? Winter sets. The last ship doesn't make it. The last ship that goes up to Troas, Titus isn't on. So Paul's now pulling his hair out going, how are the Corinthians handling this? I have no idea. So they go to plan B, their next rendezvous point, which is Philippi. Titus didn't need a boat. He could walk up to Philippi. So they meet in Philippi. Guess what happens? Titus says, Paul, you won't believe it. They were overwhelmingly touched by your letter. In fact, they say that at least most of them, there's still some opponents, but the majority of the church has been re-persuaded to follow you again. And Paul's ecstatic. He's so ecstatic. He says things um, uh, like in verse chapter 7, verse, verse 8, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7. And not only, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 6. <laughs> Just keep going up until we get there. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's what he's saying. Titus came with the good news and I was so comforted. And that's what you have there in our chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I couldn't stop thinking about how they received the letter, right? Because I did not find my brother Titus there, insert, to comfort me about you. So I took leave of them and went on to read read Philippi. So that's the background we have here. Why is Paul distressed? There are opponents, he visits, he's rejected, he writes a letter, it's in suspense, he's waiting, he didn't meet up with Titus, he has no idea how the Corinthians are handling this. He meets Titus, yes! Comfort. I found out that for the most part, they're okay. And that's why he writes 2 Corinthians, is to um, reaffirm their confidence in him as a pastor by giving him a bad resume I am worthy of being your pastor because I am a weakling. And that's the kind of leader you want. That's what he's going to say. And um, then giving him a couple clarifications. Beware of these opponents who tried to rob you the first time. They're masked apostles. 
They're fake. They're phonies. They're bigger than they really are. If you prick them, they will let a lot of hot air out. So that's Paul's distress. Now, how does he handle this distress? He unmasks it. And that's what we've seen. He writes a very painful letter. He unmasked his distress. He didn't try to play the bully game with his opponents. He didn't try to uh, boast of bigger recommendations and speak better than his opponents and have more charisma than his opponents. He didn't play their game. He simply unmasked himself in a letter and said, hey, just so you know, I'm hurt and I'm distressed. And as he unmasked himself, he really put himself in a vulnerable spot, didn't he? When you unmask yourself, you're opening yourself up to be wounded. And the Corinthians could have turned around and said, yeah, Paul, you are kind of a loser. We don't want you. That's what this letter opened him up to. It opened him up to all kinds of hurt. But it also paved the way for him and the Corinthian church to be reconciled, to be brought together again. And you cannot do so like this. Arms folded. Right? When there's a distance between you and somebody, you can't get back together like this. You have to get back together like this. Arms open. And that's what Paul does through the letter. He puts himself out there. He puts his arms open. This is a protective stance. This is, you might hurt me and I don't want to get hurt. But by opening the arms, this is a vulnerable stance. This is, hey, you could do your worst and I'm inviting you to, but I prefer you hug me. And so Paul unmasks himself. He offers himself to them. And in the dreadful, distressing suspense of what did they say, Titus comes back and says, All good. All systems go. And then Paul goes from distressed to comforted, from distress to joy. That's what triggers it for Paul. He had to unmask himself in order to reach the comfort of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And that's why he starts off with, Blessed be the God of all comfort. God of all mercies who comforts us in our infliction so that we can comfort those who are afflicted. So see what happens here. Paul unmasks himself. He opens himself up. God is able to, through Titus, bring him comfort. And now Paul says, since God has comforted me, I want to comfort you back. Know that I have no hard feelings against you whatsoever. I I realize that you were duped, these masked men. But hey, what I want to do now is just simply unmask them for you so that you can see the truth. Uh, he, He wants to now comfort them. And this whole comfort thing, how Paul gets to this ecstatic, blessed be God, and I'm comforted. It's all because he was willing to unmask himself and make himself vulnerable and put himself out there. And that was the necessary step. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot receive God's comfort or the comfort of his people if we keep masks on. It will never happen. We cannot receive comfort if we do not unmask our distress. We cannot receive comfort if we do not unmask our distress. 
That's the way to comfort. Paul was pained deeply. He was anxious deeply. He was sorrowful. That's something that happened because he was hit deep. All this stuff, it hit him deeply. And we get hurt deeply sometimes. We have our distress. And it it roots itself deep in our being, deep in our soul. And we, though, choose to rather walk around and try to have the world fix it on a surface level. Listen, if the wound is that deep, you have to let people in that deep. But instead, prop courtesy of Tim Kohler, thank you very much. Instead, we walk around like masked people, right? I almost thought about teaching half of this like this. So we walk around like this, and people are like, how are you today? Like, oh, I'm good. What's new with you? Avalon started crawling. See, often we do that, right? We divert the attention to something else in our life, or, oh, yeah, I got promoted in work. But what about, like, you? And sometimes we walk around with this great distress, and people are there. People that maybe have been through the very same thing you have, the God who comforted them so that they can comfort you, um, and you're excluding an opportunity because you're basically walking around like this, but your mask and your words are like, oh, everything's dandy. Yeah, everything's fine. And Paul's asking that maybe every now and then with people you trust. Of course, you don't do this with everybody. You have to trust people. Um, Take that mask off and say, yeah, actually, I have an opponent who said this and it really hurt. Or I applied for a promotion and I got rejected. Or I just gave a wedding ceremony and they threw tomatoes at me. Um, We have to unmask ourselves. Distress can't be buried. Uh, it's in here, but I, I'm, I can handle it. I'm fine. We need, it's, it's this important. We need to read this again. 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress, affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Look, on the other end of this verse is there are other people who are comforted by God right now that are waiting to comfort you with the same comfort they receive from God, but you're keeping the mask on and you're protecting yourself. Paul wrote a letter, he made himself vulnerable. He uncrossed his arms, he took the mask off. And look, you may not need to write a letter, but the point is there was an expression, there was an unguarding and unmasking, and he let the distress be known. Do what you will. But Titus was comforted by them. Titus comforts Paul. And Paul has comfort now, and he's able to give us the gift of 2 Corinthians that we will see for these next six weeks. Are you sufficient? Verse 16 of chapter 2. Who is sufficient for these things? Are you sufficient? Are you sufficient? Are you sufficient? I hope you're saying no, because you're not. I'm not sufficient. Nobody is sufficient. That's why we must unmask ourselves and just face who we really are.
and let God's aroma be sufficient.